Have you been zombified by parasites? Well, as we mentioned in this episode, I got to go to the doctor and find out, right? See if I have toxo. You're worried so. that you're hijacked by Toxoplasma gondii? Well, I'm kind of a little hopeful because I'm like, either way, I'm, I'm acting however I act, right? And so then if it was like, oh, it's it's toxo, then it would like it'd be like, that's why I can't remember where I put my keys. You know, that'd be kind of cool. I think so, so it's good news either way because if you do have toxo it explains your weird behavior and if you don't have toxo then you don't then i don't have toxo okay. yeah exactly so um yeah i it's almost like you remember when like during the COVID era way way back when uh <gasps> when like every time you would take a test it'd be like well maybe i've got it and then i don't have to worry about it anymore right so back when we thought that when you got it once, then you were fine after that. Yeah. Right. I mean, isn't that how toxo is? I feel like if I have toxo, then I can just start like uh, eating raw mice and I'll be good. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think uh, I think it might be bad to like, you know, have a a rampant infection where you like double down. You're like, hey, I'm already infected. Why don't I introduce a bunch more toxo and see what happens? Mm. One way to find out. One way to find out. Um, but in the meantime, welcome to the Zombified Podcast. We're your source for fresh brains and brains infected with Toxoplasma gondii. <laughs> That's right. I'm your host, Athena Activist, psychology professor at ASU and executive producer of Zombified Media. And I am your co-host, Dave Lundberg-Kenrick, uh, creative director of media outreach at ASU and... Um, Parasite enthusiast, I would say. Yeah. I think I kind of. I mean, I, they're gross, you know, but uh, they're interesting. Yeah. So, although you might be like you, you and Kelly both were like totally like they're the best. Yeah. Right? I mean, they're so amazing. Like the kinds of things that they can do. So you know, you kind of like. There's like the fear factor about them because they're like scary as fuck. But then also, you're just like that's a badass, right? Like. Or like, Actually, what, what? what a hustle, you know? <laughs> I guess, I guess. The ant still freaks me out. I don't like thinking about that ant. So that You mean the, about. the fungus that zombifies the ant, takes it, it over? It's Yeah, it's horrifying. It is pretty horrifying. Um, but the then, fungus, like, it's like it saves all of the, you know, metabolic energy of creating its own body and it just takes over the ant. I mean, it's so... Like, it makes so much evolutionary sense. Yeah, but evolution is mean. <laughs> so. It can be. It can be. Yeah. Um, what, 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 do you, what do you love about this episode? Let's, let's uh, turn things around for a minute. Um, what do I... I mean, it's fascinating, right? It is really hearing about the gulls in the oak trees and the parasites within the parasites like it's it it's gall it's galling really it is it <laughs> is it definitely i mean it really does make me feel like but it gives you the creepy it's, it does it yeah. does but uh it is really fascinating what about you what is your favorite part uh, I, I'm honestly just geeking out with Kelly about how awesome parasites are. It's rarely that I'm talking to someone and we're like both getting like so excited. Yeah, it's weird. <laughs> it's, it's, the, it's the one person who watched both of you do this. I'm like, 
what is with these people? <laughs> so, um, <laughs> but uh, well, I, so. you do you, I guess. <laughs> um, so. Yeah. So, so this uh, episode, we get to talk with Kelly Wienersmith, who is a parasitologist, and a, you know she does research on parasites, and she's also an awesome science communicator. She and has, she like got to help sort of discover this this really awful creature right yeah <laughs> yes, yes. So, yeah um, yeah and, so. and on top of that she like writes about all sorts of cool science stuff including like what's coming in the future with science um are we and going space, into space? space is her next is, thing so is space you know colonization realistic like all this stuff so she's just a super cool human being who does stuff that is I mean, so central to all of what we do with this podcast. So I'm so glad that we finally got to have her on it the is, show. It, was, it is really cool. Yeah. So, yes. All right. So without further ado, let's hear from this week's fresh brain, Kelly Wienersmith. And whatever is inside her brain controlling it. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's crazy, but it seems so logical. Try to fight it, but it's something psychological with you. Makes me act the way I do. I'm not trying to be over-analytical. Retracing time to remind myself how ugly this could be. But something else is taking over me. Kelly, welcome to the Zombified Podcast. It is so amazing to have you here with us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's so amazing to be here. I just cannot wait to talk about zombies with y'all. <laughs> Excellent. Um, Kelly, could you introduce yourself in um, your own words for our listeners who don't have the amazing privilege of already knowing you as well as I do? Oh, absolutely. So uh, I'm Dr. Kelly Wienersmith. I'm an adjunct assistant professor at Rice University, but I spend a lot of my time uh, writing books and doing science communication, working on trivia games. I my parents still ask me, what are you going to be when you grow up? And I'm not really sure. But uh, it involves studying zombies to some extent. Awesome, right? Yeah. I, I feel like you have been like one of the pioneers in like really making like parasitism and like infectious disease super fun. Oh, that is maybe the nicest thing anyone's ever said to me. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> How did you get into this in the first place, Kelly? Oh, my God. You know, so if you had told me when I was 12 that I was going to spend my career studying parasites, I would have just been like so disappointed in future Kelly. Uh, I thought they were gross. And then when I was working on my master's degree, I read Parasite Rex by Carl Zimmer. And I was just like, whoa, like, yes, they're still creepy and gross. And I don't want to be in the same room as a parasite. But like, wow, they do all these amazing things that I hadn't realized that they do and like the ways they trick the immune system. And I that like sort of planted the seed in my brain that parasites could be interesting. And then I went on to a behavioral ecology lab for my PhD, where the lab did a lot of work on behavioral syndromes and animal personality. And I couldn't really figure out exactly what angle I wanted to take to study those topics. And one day my advisor, Andy C was like, you know, have you heard about 
Toxoplasma gondii, it's this parasite. And in humans, it's associated with changing all this pair or this personality stuff. And I was like, whoa. And that, you know, that seed that was in my great brain started to grow and was like, it's gotta be parasites. And I've been just infected ever since. Uh, and, and yeah, that's the path. So there's like some meta zombification parasitism that's happened where the very idea of parasites and manipulate behavior has taken over your brain and behavior. Yes, absolutely. And I'm so glad it did. I have it no other way. I'm glad that I'm not the only one, Kelly. (laughs) (laughs) It's fun. Yeah, I I love that. So um so tell us the basics of like uh what is uh what's Toxoplasma gondii for so you know we can start somewhere with like a specific example of a cool parasite. Sure. So so I will preface uh my discussion on Toxoplasma gondii with uh the past eight years I've been working like crazy on this space book and uh which we're not talking about today, I know, but like uh but I have, I'm not up to date on the last eight years of Toxoplasma gondii research, and I hear some awesome stuff has happened recently. Okay, so, well, you just said I'm working on a space book, so I feel like we can't not ask you about the space book now, because like a space book, like what what is happening in space that we need to know about? Maybe just like the, the, the short version, and then we'll get back to parasites. Okay, so the, the short version is that my husband and I wrote this book called Soonish, and uh, we had two chapters on space, like the declining cost of sending stuff to space and the possibility of asteroid mining. And with both of those technologies, when they work out, they make space settlement more feasible. So we got super excited about like, oh my gosh, or is space settlement, like we've been talking about this for decades, are we finally going to do it in our lifetime? And so we spent four years researching it. And the title of the book is A City on Mars, Can We Settle Space? Should We Settle Space? And have we really thought this through? Which might, which might tell you the direction our research took us in. Uh, and that's all I'm allowed to say about the book. But that's occupied most of my last four years. Uh, and wow. it comes out in November. Wow. But, but so that's why I'm behind on super cool Toxoplasma gondii stuff. All right. Well, you know, really just we, we just do the basics of like, you know, what what does Toxo do? Like, like sure. you know, just super quick, because I think we want to talk about like a lot of parasites as opposed to just doing a deep dive in one. Okay, that sounds great. So uh, so Toxoplasma gondii is a protozoan parasite. The host that it does sexual reproduction is it does sexual reproduction in are cats. And so when it's in a cat, they find mates, they produce these oocysts that the cat poops into the environment. And then there's lots of different ways to get infected from there. So you can get infected if you are working in your garden and a outdoor cat has pooped in your garden, if that cat happens to be infected. And then if you don't wash your vegetables or your hands well enough, you can get it in your mouth and then you get infected. Or those parasites can go on to infect something that you subsequently eat uh, or your cat can defecate in the house. There's all these different, this is a, this parasite has an amazing ability to like persist in the environment and jump from host to host to host. So it can live in rats. It can live in birds. And when any of these animals get eaten by cats, the cycle starts again. And so humans don't get eaten by cats very much, but rats and mice and birds do. Uh, And so there was this thought that like maybe the parasite is changing animal behavior in ways that increase encounter rates with the rats or the mice uh, with the cats. And so uh, Joanne Webster and her lab looked into this and they found that when rats are infected by this parasite, they are actually attracted to the smell of cat urine. So usually when a rat smells cat urine, they're like, run away! They recognize it as a predator cue. Uh, But then 
oh, I think it was the Sapolsky lab actually did some work on rat brains and found that when they're infected by this parasite, the part of the brain that's associated with like fear no longer lights up in response to cat urine, but the part of the brain associated with like attraction and like, let's get it on sort of stuff does light up. And so they go from being totally grossed out to cat urine to being like, you know, going for it. I, Which, I, I feel like maybe, you know, there should be like a whole field of research about like, you know, does any of this apply to understanding like interesting human preferences? <laughs> just saying, you know, like, has anybody looked? <laughs> well, the, the, the literature looking for human connections is vast. And so maybe somebody has looked at mate preferences. They, they have done some research looking at uh, attraction to the smell of cat urine in infected people. Mm-hmm. And, and so I think usually when you tell people like, okay, what do you think the result was? People are like, oh, crazy cat lady. Women were probably attracted to the smell of cat urine, but they weren't. So infected women are not more attracted to the smell of cat urine, but infected men are. They are slightly attracted to the smell of cat urine. What? When they're are you serious? Uh, well, I mean, this was one study, wow. uh, but that's what that one study found. Uh, and I believe this study was done by uh, a guy whose name I'm probably going to butcher, and I'm sorry about that, uh, Yaroslav Flager. And he has done a bunch of work looking at this parasite. And he, the way the story goes, as he told it uh, in The Atlantic, was that one day he was thinking to himself, you know, I like behave kind of weird. Like I do things other people don't do. Maybe I have a brain parasite, <laughs> which, <laughs> which is very insightful. And so he... He checked and he is indeed, I believe, infected by Toxoplasma gondii and this got him interested. So he he's I think he's a psych professor and he started giving surveys to people in the Czech military. So I think he's in Czechoslovakia and I'm probably getting all of these tiny details wrong. Uh, but the story broad strokes is, is right. And so, uh, yeah, so people in the military and then, of course, undergrads, the most studied population ever, probably. Uh, and he finds all these correlations between like when you take blood, you can find out if someone's infected or not. And people who are infected, like if they're men, they're less rule following. And if they're women, they're more warm and caring. There's some correlations with neuroticism. If you're infected, you're you're something like two and a half times more likely to get in a car accident. And it's not because you're just like driving all over the road like a crazy person, uh, but it's just because it slows your reaction time. So if you're in that situation where like you need to do a split second reaction to get out of the way of something, you're less likely to do it if you're infected by this parasite. Um, and so, yeah, it does seem wow. to be influencing human behavior. Does, well, it, does it, it increase or decrease neuroticism? Increase. And so there's oh. uh, Kevin Lafferty did this great paper where he looked at population level neuroticism scores. So like he aggregated country neuroticism scores and correlated it with the percent of the population that has the parasite. And countries that have higher neuroticism scores have higher prevalence of the parasite. And they're more likely to care about masculine gender roles. Like it's more important to them that the man is the one who's bringing home the bacon. Uh, But like so many human uh, stuff that involves studying behavior and pathogens. The problem is you d- it's possible that countries that are more neurotic or countries that care more about gender roles engage in behaviors that make them more likely to get infected. Mm-hmm. So right. differentiating between the parasite is making people neurotic or neurotic people do things that engage in behaviors that make them more likely to encounter the parasite and get infected. Yeah. That's hard or to tease apart. Some third factor that's, you know, 
correlated with both of them that causes right it's a whole like exactly. correlation causation problem but there, there's certainly like a lot of weird stuff that's totally. going on where you're like mm, maybe we should look into this some more and i have to say that um i i have not had the thought up until you just mentioned it that like i should reflect on the fact that i'm weird in the sense of like <laughs> do i have a brain parasite or some other set of you know microbes or something that's taking over my behavior and making can me I, how ho- yeah i was wondering this like how hard would it be for me to go get tested i'm like really because i I mean i think you could you could go to your doctor or like you know sometimes there are uh labs that you can go to where you could have your blood drawn you can tell them what you want them to do uh and there are like antibody tests and so this is an important test to have done uh for example if you're a pregnant woman who come is in environments where you might get infected so if you get infected for the first time when you're pregnant the parasite not only goes to your brain, but it also goes to the fetus's brain and can cause some major problems. And this is one reason why women who are pregnant often ask their husbands to change the litter boxes, for example. And that's what I did. And then I just neglected to mention to my husband that it was safe for me to start changing the litter box again. (laughs) And so he still does it. But anyway, so you you could ask the doctor or there's some labs you could go to to get antibody tests. Well, it's a pretty high proportion, right? Something like 30% of people in Western societies have it. And it's like more in um non it's something I mean I have vaguely remember something about it actually being surprisingly common. I, I thought my memory of the number was more like 1820, but yes, like okay. higher than, but and yeah. again, I haven't looked at the Yeah. At, at least people who test positive maybe for the antibodies, like you, you don't have necessarily an active infection, but. Well, I mean, you never get rid somewhere. of it. Yeah. Right. Right. Cause they just sit in your, in your brain and in your muscles, just ready to flare up again. If the opportunity is right. That's their home now. Woo. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So, so let's like go a little big picture. What, you know, how is it that uh, parasites and, you know, any sort of agents of infection evolve to manipulate their host's behavior? Like, where does that, you know, how how do we explain that in evolutionary terms? Like, you know, what, what's going on there? Yeah. So, so I guess the, you know, the idea would be that like, you've got, you know, for example, some parasites living on the brain. And uh, at first, maybe they're just in the brain because it's uh, an area where the immune response tends to not be super strong because you don't want to like damage your own brain tissue. And so maybe they started there just because it was a safe place to be. And then one of them happens to have some mutation that maybe causes the right kind of inflammation that gets the host to behave in some way that happens to increase predation risk by like, if this is a parasite that's transmitted by one host being consumed by the other, maybe some behavior that's associated with inflammation gets that individual consumed by the next host in the life cycle. And then that genotype now has sort of a benefit going forward. And so over time, you can end up with just sort of random things that end up being beneficial and change something about the way the brain is working and behavior uh, to increase transmission rates. Um, But, you know, not every parasite is starting in the brain. So there's lots of different routes, apparently, through which this is this can happen. But, you know, there's there's a story for how it could. Yeah. And and then any parasite, any, you know, agent of manipulation, that does a good job of getting its host to do really anything that happens to increase the survival or reproduction of that <sighs> agent of zombification, right? That that gets selected through natural selection. Yeah. And then 
increases in, you know, frequency in the population. And then before you know it, it's like, oh, you know, most species on Earth are like parasites of some sort. (laughs) (laughs) There are a lot of parasites. I mean, if you go out in the wild and you pick a wild animal out, most of them will have at least one species of parasite, you know, probably in their gut or something. So there's there's a lot of parasites out there, but they don't all manipulate. But plenty of them do. Hmm. Are there... Is there any like a rhyme or reason to the parasites that manipulate versus the ones that maybe just like free ride and consume the resources of the host? I don't know that we have a really good framework for thinking about the evolution of manipulation yet. Uh, It does seem like you get a fair bit of manipulation happening when parasites are trophically transmitted. So that means one host gets infected and for the parasite to make it to the next host the next host has to eat the first host. So this is sort of like the rat and the cat thing we just talked about. So when you have parasites that are going to different species through being eaten, we tend to see where, you know, if you look for manipulation in those systems, you might get lucky and find something. Um, But you also get things like parasitoids that manipulate their hosts. So they might lay eggs, you know, maybe a wasp would lay eggs in a caterpillar And one thing that would be manipulated is the immune system so that the eggs and, you know, all the little offspring can survive inside the caterpillar. And then sometimes they'll like hatch and burrow out to the outside of the caterpillar and then make their little cocoons underneath and the caterpillar will defend them. So it will like stay on top of them. And when like, because nature is just awful and it's parasites all the way down. There are hyperparasitoids who want to infect those parasitoids that are living in the cocoons underneath the caterpillar. And when the caterpillar gets disturbed, it will like shake back and forth and like knock away the hyperparasitoids. So, uh, you know, trophic manipulation, increased trophic transmission is one common form of manipulation. You also get a fair bit of this like manipulation to defend developing offsprings when developing offspring when you're talking about parasitoids. So there's like different parasite types that tend where you tend to see manipulation and the manipulation differs depending on like what the goal is. What's the difference between a parasite and a parasitoid? Oh, that's such a good question. I should have said it. So uh, a parasitoid and, you know, because these are categories that people made, nature doesn't always care and sometimes, you know, bends the rules a little bit. But the way I think of a parasitoid is uh, it's a kind of parasite where its host needs to die in order to complete the life cycle. And usually it involves like consuming the host's body beforehand. So you tend to get, uh, parasitoids tend to be bigger relative to the size of their host because they are eating the host. Whereas trophically transmitted parasites tend to be like smaller and they're just trying to get the host eaten by the next host in the life cycle. So wait, when you were saying there were parasitoids on parasitoids, so the ones on like the caterpillar are like going to be eating the whole caterpillar but the things on the things on the caterpillar are going to kill those things if like is that right (laughs) to complete their life cycle yeah interesting that could could be right yeah that could happen it is it is parasites or parasitoids all the way down isn't it (laughs) yeah yeah and they're called hyper parasitoids which sounds pretty cool it does sound pretty cool. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Meta zombification or something like that. Love it. Yeah. And I like yeah. the parasitoids because they're easier to see, you know, like watching the trophically transmitted parasites. It's harder to like capture the moment when manipulation is happening with the parasitoids. If you find one of those caterpillars, you can like poke it and they'll swing back and forth. And oh, it's just so much fun. <laughs> <laughs> is it fun for the caterpillar? No, no, I don't think so. But, uh, but. 
But it's, it might not be so painful. So there's some evidence uh, in, oh, I think the caterpillar is a Catesia species, like the tobacco hornworms. Uh, and when the parasitoid is eating its way out, it uh, has like, oh, what is it? What is the word for these? Like analgesics? Mm. So like, so if, if they don't sort of numb the caterpillar first, the caterpillar will turn around and try to like eat the wasp babies that are emerging and will like try to kill them. But if you anesthetize it for a little while, then they can crawl through and make their little cocoons and they get left alone by the caterpillar. So it's crazy. So they've got like manipulating or, you know, analgesics in their like chewing mouth parts so they can like, yeah. Well, don't even um, mosquitoes have like a little analgesic thing. So you don't feel them when they first prick you. Or is that that true? That sounds right, but I okay. don't know too much about yeah. mosquitoes. Yeah. I, well, and that's the thing. It's like there's so many ways that like manipulation can happen, so many mechanisms. And one of them is to like make you feel good, at least temporarily, right? If that yeah. manipulates your behavior in a way that helps the, you know, parasite or parasitoid survive or reproduce. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. No, parasites are like, and some, so there's this debate in the field. Wait, did you want to go in a different direction? Because no, sometimes go for I it. just blah, no, blah, blah. Good, do it. Good, good. So, so there's this debate in the field about what should count as manipulation. So for example, there's um, this tapeworm that lives in moose and it reproduces and it causes these giant like watery cancerous masses that slow the moose down so they can get eaten by wolves. So now they're easier to catch by wolves. And so the question is, does that count as manipulation? So you're not like tinkering with neurotransmitters and so it doesn't sound nearly as fancy, uh, but, I, but I fall in the camp of like, okay, but tapeworms don't usually cause these giant water-filled bags that like debilitate the host. And that seems like there must've been selection for making the host lethargic. And so to me, that seems like targeted enough that we should be calling it manipulation and it does the job. Uh, but anyway, we, we all, we have debates sometimes about how fancy it needs to be before we call it manipulation. And I set the bar low because it's all awesome. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it seems like we really like kind of over prioritize like brains. I mean, and I get yes. it. I love brains. All, yeah. You know, many of us are really into brains, but mm-hmm. like there are other ways to manipulate that don't involve directly messing with neural tissue. And yeah. so I'm I'm with you. I'm like, you know, if if it's having the effect of changing behavior, um, then it seems like we should kind of be like equal opportunity about the mechanisms that get you to that, you know, behavior change. Yeah, I, I agree. If, if there's a goal that needs to be accomplished and the parasite's doing something that increases the goal and it seems targeted, I don't know. I'm on team. It's all awesome. Yeah. 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 It's like however the parasite's going to get its hustle on, you know, like, sure, yeah. go for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Isn't there something that isn't there something that benefits from making us itchy? I can't really remember. Uh, yes. Well, yes. So there's uh, <laughs> pinworms, I think. So, okay. So pinworms, maybe this isn't what you were thinking about. I'm going to go no. to a nasty place you don't want me to go to. But here go I go. For it. So uh, pinworms, which are apparently very common or fairly common in preschools where kids are like sort of sticking their fingers in their mouth all the time. So pinworms are these And in their butts. Words. Sorry. And but that's, yeah. that's where I was going. <laughs> <laughs> so that you know they get it they get these nematodes and the nematodes like live in the gut they find mates and then the mommy nematode at night when kids are sleeping will crawl out of your anus and 
and lay eggs on the outside. And then also this like stuff that makes it itchy. And so kids wake up in the morning and they scratch their butts and then they go and they touch everything and all the other kids <laughs> pick up the eggs and then they lick their hands and then and then kids will get reinfected because, of course, they're scratching their butts and then they're also licking their hands. And, and kids are gross. Uh, I feel so then, like you, so then, should, oh, you, should write, you should write the children's bedtime story. You already are there. You're like, and then the mommy nematode comes out of the anus and lays the eggs or the baby nematodes on the Side. I think it'd be a really cute little Pixar movie about <laughs> nematodes. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, uh, so would that count as manipulation, right? Because that's changing behavior yeah, by making I, the kid itch. And... Yeah, so that's a good question. So I guess I would go ahead and say sure, because ne- so nematodes don't usually do that. So this is okay. something that like a behavior that I think selection would have shaped and like maybe they're producing a special compound that other nematodes wouldn't produce. So again, selection is like shaping this thing that's changing human behavior. And so, you know, you could also say like our sneezes manipulation, if you're using them to like transmit a virus, the virus gets transmitted to somewhere, to somewhere else. And so then the question is, does a sneeze help you more? And so sometimes parasites might be manipulating a behavior that helped us in the first place, but they're enhancing it. And so maybe like we were going to sneeze to clear some virus out and the virus like adds more to that, you know, wherever the sneezes come so from. Is, is yeah. this a thing that viruses actually do? Do they actually like encourage sneezing? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. Oh, okay. <laughs> this is, this is, right. I, I, I read it's a just the thing they could do, right? If they yeah. like, this is a suggestion box for future viruses. Okay. <laughs> so, That's right. Yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, so parasitologists, like, unfortunately, we silo ourselves into like such tiny little areas. And so like, you know, viruses and bacteria, who knows? I don't, it's like they're aliens. <laughs> I don't study that. But, uh, but I have read plenty of papers talk, you know, hypothesizing that you should expect that like a path of least resistance would be for parasites to manipulate something that humans already do when they're sick. Uh, mm. If exacerbating that behavior could benefit the parasite in some way. Yeah. Interesting. It also, so. I mean, to me, just if we're going to talk about sneezes for a second, mm-hmm. makes me very suspicious just how like aerosolized sneezes are like they don't have like it doesn't seem to me like they would have to be that aerosolized to be functional for us mm. right so that's why i'm suspicious of them <laughs> yeah fair fair enough yeah <laughs> so i i have a question kelly what is your favorite parasite paras parasite or parasitoid your favorite so, agent of zombification yes yeah biological zombification agent. so i I am so glad you asked. So it used to be, it used to be the zombie ants. Cause like, not only are they awesome, but they also have words like the grave, you know, you've got the graveyards and the death grips and like, it's just, it's a really cool system. Do I, should I explain that first? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's okay, hear okay. It. okay. So there's, uh, there's this fungus, Ophiocordyceps, that infects uh, Campanotus ants and probably some other ant genera too. I don't study this, but anyway, so the original work that got done was done in the tropics and the, what happens is that the ants, they live in trees, but they walk around on the forest floor and they encounter a fungal spore and they become infected. And for a while, they don't act infected. And so like they're living in their nest and they're getting treated like everybody else. The rest of their nest mates don't seem to know they're sick. And, and nests do have like an immune, an, you know, a colony-wide immune system where if someone's acting sick, they often will like take them and kill them and move them out of the colony to be like, sorry, Brenda, 
You can't kill everybody else. You got to go somewhere else. Uh, But they leave this fungus infected ant alone. And when the fungus is ready to do its thing, the ant kind of does this drunk walk down the tree where it sort of like stumbles its way down. It walks along the forest floor for a while until it finds a like sapling. It climbs to, I think it's the north, northwest side of the plant. And this is happening at solar noon. And it climbs something like 20 centimeters plus or minus two centimeters up. And then it finds the underside of a leaf and the ant bites down. And this is the death grip. And then it loses the ability to ever use its mandibles ever again. So it can't move its jaw. It is like stuck in that spot. And like, this blows my mind because like, you know, so my husband will like every once in a while, he'll he'll joke. He'll be like, oh, Kelly, like what is two inches? Show me with your fingers. And I'm like, "Ah, I don't know. Like I'm awful. (laughs) I'm awful at estimating lengths and distances. And the fact that this fungus, like by remote control can get ants to like, 20 centimeters on the northwest, you know, north, northwest side of the plant or something like this. The precision is just exquisite. And so uh, if you take that leaf where the ant is and you move it up, the temperature and humidity are not good for the fungus and the fungus won't grow. And if you take it and you put it on the forest floor, there are all these little predators like predatory spiders and the ant disappears and the fungus gets killed too. But if you leave it at this like 20 centimeter zone, the fungus will grow a stalk out of the side of the ant's neck and it will rain fungal spores on the forest floor and the system will start again. And other individuals from the same colony will get infected and they'll form a graveyard. So you find a bunch of these. Um, And it's just like, it's got all the best names, you know, death grips and graveyards. (laughs) And, you know, now it's got video games. I think The Last of Us is based on or inspired by this fungus. Sort of like Cordyceps idea. Yeah. 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 And Pedro Pascal now so, <laughs> on TV show. Um, yeah. So is this, you mentioned that it's sort of when the fungus infects the ant, it kind of lays low for a while, right? And yeah. so is that like an evolved characteristic? Like, is it like, you know what I mean? Like, is it a thing where there were other versions that where they caught, they caught it on the way in and then, or do you know? Yeah, I mean, so I, I don't know the answer. It sound it seems to me like it should be that something that selection would have shaped because you know there are other infectious agents that do get caught and okay. that would stop the cycle. And so it I mean the the uh, Amelia Garcia, I think is the woman who wrote the the first paper looking at how the colony responds. And you know, my sense was that she and her co-authors were kind of surprised that the colony wasn't picking up on this because it is a future threat. So you'd think uh-huh. they would, you know, there'd be some selection for them to, uh, you know, notice it. And so maybe there's a bit of an arms race going on. I don't know. But so it's surprising to me. Wow. So now, now this was just the runner up, you say. Yeah. Oh, and, and I'll note real quick. I, I uh-huh. saw that in, in, so that's what happens in the tropics. In temperate regions, they cling to very small tree branches. And I saw some in North Carolina and I found out that there's some in Virginia. So they're in the U.S. So when you go in the woods, you should look on trees. They might be there. Oh, wow. that's gross. It's great. <laughs> it's great. Um, okay, so that's the runner up. All right, so, so should we do, we'll do a little drum roll for the do 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 For the winner is... The Crypt Keeper Wasp. And, uh, and this I study, so I'm biased. Uh, so, okay, so the host is a wasp and the parasitoid is a wasp. And the host is interesting also. So the host is a gall wasp. Uh, 
and they lay their eggs on oak trees and they're sort of manipulators also. So the mama wasp lays an egg in parts of oak trees where there's like sort of oak tree stem cells. And once the egg is laid, they manipulate the oak tree into producing a gall, which is a compartment that's going to protect the developing insect from other from parasitoids or predators. So, you know, birds would love to have these little grubby snacks if they could get to them. And these galls can be amazing. So some galls have like giant spikes and some are like super fuzzy uh, and some have like a solid ball on the outside and then a little ball that rolls around on the inside. What? And, yeah. Crazy. Right. And so what? the, I, <laughs> why? Yeah, so, yeah. Yeah. Good question. So the, the, uh, when a parasitoid tries to lay its egg so that the parasitoid can like eat and kill the wasp, it needs to get its ovipositor, which is sort of like a needle through which the egg gets laid like very close to where the host is, is growing. And so if you've got this little ball that sort of rolls around, then it's going to be really hard for that ovipositor to get inside this tiny little rolling ball. Cause you like, you know, you touch it, it moves to the side or something. And like, also you need an ovipositor that like is like a prehensile tail. It can like move around and search wow. for it. And so there's this arms race where parasitoids have these crazy ovipositors and these galls have these crazy protections and now, now the gulls, they they protect the wasp, but they're being made by the tree. Is that yes. right? But yeah. they're getting hijacked by the wasp. The physiology of the tree is getting hijacked by the wasp to benefit the wasp. Is that right? So, yes. I have, so a, I, I have a question. Wait, yeah. before we... So, <laughs> like, when you've got the one that's got the ball within a ball, is it like the wasp? sort of changes what it's telling the tree to do at different stages or like how does that or Who knows? do we not know that yet okay yeah no okay. We don't, i don't That's think we know that yet it's still a mystery okay yeah yeah Interesting. so so th- this to me is so you know you don't usually think of manipul. i didn't before i worked in the system usually think of manipulation uh with like plants but here you've got a wasp that's manipulating the plants into producing this compartment that keeps it safe and it also manipulates it into producing this nutritious tissue that lines the inside of the gall. Oh so, when, so when the egg hatches, it's like it eats all this tree tissue wow. and it's like, thanks for the buffet. Uh, and so that's or that, that when everything goes well for the gall wasp, that's how things work out. Are there any it's, other questions? It's crazy. It's, it's, a, it's like some sort of cross species like placenta or something. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Yeah. So and, weird. And, so crazy. So crazy. And, and like, and, in a lot of cases, it's not so bad for the tree because these things are pretty small. They don't take a ton of energy. Uh, but, you know, if trees get tons of these, then it can be bad, especially if the tree is meant to like, you know, for aesthetic reasons, if it starts to have all of these weird growths on it. I think the tree looks cooler that way, but not everyone does. Uh, and so anyway, we, we think a main part purpose of these galls is one, to feed the offspring and two, uh, as protection from predators and hyper or, and parasitoids. Okay, that's just the host. So <laughs> the, now I wait. Was, there's more. Oh, wait, there's more. <laughs> and so the specific host uh, gall wasp that I study is Bassettia pallida, and they actually make a sort of disappointing gall uh, aesthetically. So instead of being like big and multicolored or fuzzy, uh, it's called a crypt because it's very cryptic. So inside of this tiny stem, there's, you maybe you'll get lucky and you'll see a little bit of a swelling, but there's this tiny little compartment that again gets lined with nutritious tissue. 
and the what you know the egg has been laid inside of there it hatches undergoes some development eats the tissue and when the wasp is ready to go off and complete the rest of its life cycle it chews a hole out of this tiny little crypt and then it goes off and does whatever it does next um and so that's what happens with the host but things don't always go well and sometimes this beautiful parasitoid uh, called the Crypt Keeper Wasp comes by and it's iridescent and it has these like black like boots. It looks like it's wearing these like butt kicking boots. It looks so awesome. <laughs> and we we don't know why it's iridescent. We don't know why that benefits it. But like it, when you shine light on it in different ways, sometimes it's like blue and sometimes it's purple or green or orange. And it's just gorgeous. Is um, it on its way to a party? Because I would explain it. I, I guess. Well, it's, it's going to be the only. Well, it's going to be in there with the host. But yeah, maybe. Maybe. <laughs> Could be. There's there's a lot of partying parasitoids because there's a, a fair number of them that are iridescent. And I don't think we have a good good handle on that. Oh. That would be a great idea for a, like a rave. It's like a yes. parasite themed <laughs> rave. You come please as an in, iridescent parasite. Please invite me. I'm going to. Nobody's nobody's getting invited. Everyone has to sneak in. That's that's the first. (laughs) (laughs) And you have to find it. You have to to trick someone into letting you in. Uh, It's probably not gonna end up having a lot of people, but I hope I can make it. (laughs) Very explicit, very explicit. So okay, so the Crypt Keeper wasp. So uh, it lays an egg inside of the crypt and we don't know how it finds it. So a couple different mechanisms could be. So like if the tree is to be super anthropomorphic about it, if the tree is unhappy about having uh, this squatter in its stem, then it could be releasing chemicals to draw the parasitoids. And that we do know that there are some plants, like when they're getting eaten by, you know, caterpillar or attacked in some way, they'll release compounds that attract insect predators or parasitoids to, you know, to help them out essentially. So maybe Hmm. there's some chemical cues or uh, in other systems, it seems to be that the parasitoids can walk along a plant and feel vibrations underneath. And be like, oh, something's moving under there. And then they can try to find it with their ovipositor. We don't know what's happening in our system, but somehow they find it. And so, so just sorry to interrupt, but I'm just like imagining this. It's sort of like the enemy of my enemy is my friend where like the tree and the hyperparasitoid actually have aligned interest because the hyperparasitoid wants to eat the parasitoid and the tree wants to get rid of the parasitoid. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, it's super cool. <laughs> Nature is so complicated. Um, go ahead, Dave. Well, no, so I still want to hear about how the Cryptkeeper wasp uh-huh. eats the gall wasp, right? What happens? What happens once it finds one? So. Yeah, okay. So, so the egg gets laid, uh, and now it's inside of the crypt with the host. And, wait, 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 uh, wait, wait. Sorry, sorry. The yeah. egg, the... Which egg? Yeah. Oh, so so the host is already in there. It's been doing its thing. Okay. Now the crypt keeper wasp comes along and the mom lays the parasitoid. So let's start referring to the, so we've already talked about the gall wasp as a manipulator, but let's just call it the host. So the gall okay. wasp is the host. Okay. The parasitoid has now entered the crypt. And uh, now the gall wasp host starts sort of behaving normally. It starts to chew its way out of the crypt when it gets sort of old enough and it's ready to do that. 
But instead of getting all the way out, it makes a smaller than usual hole and it like plugs it with its head and it's like peeking out with one eyeball. And as somebody who's claustrophobic, like when I look across <laughs> the stem and I see all of these like host heads just stuck in these crypts forever, I'm like, ah, it freaks me out. <laughs> um, but I still love it. Um, and, and at this point, uh, the parasitoid, it, it can now consume the body of its host. And so we don't, this is another one of those examples where like maybe it's debilitation happening. So actually let me jump ahead and tell you what the benefit is. And then we can talk about the mechanism. Okay. So, uh, so now you've got this head plugging the hole, the parasitoid consumes the host. And when the parasitoid is ready to go off and complete its life cycle, it chews a hole through the host's head and emerges through the head which is just <laughs> okay. totally metal. And I love it. And, and so we, we took, we shaved off these tiny little pieces of bark and we put them over some of the host heads that hadn't been like popped through yet. And uh -huh. we found that the parasitoids were three times more likely to die trapped inside the crypt. If they only had to get through even just a tiny little piece of bark. Oh. Uh, and so they need the host to start the hole because they can get through the host soft head, but they can't get through the woody tissue and the bark. And so it's the, you know, the, the, the wow. host is making it this sort of the exit plan for the parasitoid. And then it gets consumed in the process. Wow. It's so great. <laughs> and, and so, so we don't know how, like how this is achieved. It could be like, you know, the parasitoid is just like hanging back and waiting. And one day it notices that there's a little bit of light in the crypt. And it's like, oh, my host is like starting to make the emergence hole. I'll wait until there's a little bit more light and then I'll kill it by eating its insides at like just the right moment. Oh, um, okay. Okay. And, and so the selection could have been on like killing the host at just the right time. Or it could be manipulating the hormones that the host uses to like determine that it's time for it to emerge. And maybe it gives it like a lower dose than usual. So it doesn't complete the process. Uh, so we, we don't know what's happening, but we do know Udaraset is, uh, so Udaraset is the parasitoid that it's sneaky and it needs help getting out of the crypt it has gotten itself into. Wow. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> And, and can I just, so I work with, uh, I worked with this on Scott Egan, Andrew Forbes and Anna Ward and Scott Egan, when we discovered that like this was a parasitoid that hadn't been described yet, he had this amazing idea to call, to name it after uh, the Egyptian god Set or Seth kind of depends on uh, who you're talking to. But so uh, Set killed his brother Osiris and uh, like threw his body parts uh, across Egypt and this is a very messy eater. So when you dissect a gall, the host body parts after it's started to be eaten are like sort of thrown all around the crypt. Uh, and Set is like the Egyptian god of sort of like evil and like cruel animals. And so uh, Scott was like, it would be so great to name it after him. And I was like, yes, a hundred times yes. And so anyway, it was wait, wait. So, so speaking of it, <laughs> so I like that naming, but I'm also now you're describing, so the mess, uh -huh. so, so set when it's eating its host, it just, it doesn't, cause you said it sort of burrows through the head. Does it also eats the rest of its host before it leaves sort of, or takes like big chunks of the rest of the host? Yeah, so so like, it eats all the like gooey internal stuff. 
And then it leaves the exoskeleton, but it sort of like makes a mess of the exoskeleton. You know, imagine like, you know, sucking on a chicken bone and then throwing it behind you. Uh, that's kind of what it looks like uh, when this, when this. Except I'm inside the chicken, right? While I'm doing this, I'm <laughs> yeah, inside you know, the chicken and then I'm What if you're in like inside a giant crab and you're eating it from the inside out? There you go. And also it's possible the metaphor I came up with didn't work so well, but, <laughs> but you, you, it's a messy eater. <laughs> And I guess, and it's sort of, I guess the name works also because it's sort of doing this to its own brother, right? It's a wasp eating another wasp, sort of. Yeah. So um, that's, is that common or is that like for for sort of interspecies or? Well, and like wasps, like there's so many crazy wasp parasites things, right? I mean, yeah. I just know there's like so many like subspecies that like specialize on other species and then you know, wasps that parasitize other wasps. It's like, yeah, I, I don't know. I, it seems wild to have so many different variations. Yeah. Yeah. No, wasps go after wasps all the time. And so that this gall wasp that I talked about, uh, so the crypt keeper wasp is a parasitoid that goes after it. I think there was something like eight to 10 other parasitoids that also came out of the gall. So they were also going after this gall wasp host. Uh, and we think we found a couple parasitoids of those parasitoids uh and so there's <laughs> this incredible community in these tiny little compartments and so yeah wasps going after wasps is pretty common we've after the fact found uh seven other gall wasp species that are manipulated in the same way by the cryptkeeper wasp so uh this it's a manipulator that's a bit of a generalist it can infect at least eight of, or eight species total and fun fact uh, Scott Egan went to, oh, I always forget if it's the American Museum of Natural History or the Smithsonian, but I think it's the AMNH. Kinsey, before he was like human sexuality guy, was a gall wasp guy. And there are millions of gall wasps uh, in museums that you can go to that he collected. And Scott Egan found that some of them had these gall wasp hosts with like gaping holes in their head and they were like peeking out of the holes. And so Scott was like, I think it's inf- it's either there's multiple Eudera species doing this in different hosts, or this guy's a generalist and we've missed it all this time. And it's been sitting in the museums, like staring us in the face wow. for wow. years. And uh, and so anyway, that that sort of just got us on the search to find more hosts. And then we we found some more hosts. That's so cool. Yeah, wow. it's awesome. <laughs> so that's my it favorite makes, system. It, it makes you wonder like what we don't know about yet that's out there like what kind of crazy <laughs> parasites like is there like parasite that parasitizes another parasite that is parasitized by i mean like it could there could be a lot oh yeah no there could be many levels and like i mean this was no this was in the museums and we missed it this was happening like literally on the trees of rice university's campus and like you know it wasn't found until 2017 or something and so and i remember wow. when i was when I was an undergrad, I remember thinking like, oh my gosh, these, you know, these ecology textbooks are so thick. We already know so much. Like how much is there left out there that's undiscovered? And the answer is so much. There's so much left to learn. And uh, it's pretty awesome. Yeah, that's super exciting. And I mean, I feel like it is, it's easy, you know, when you're kind of in the academy to kind of get sucked into this idea that like, oh, we have the body of knowledge and then we will transmit the body of knowledge to the next generation. But Mm -hmm there's so much that we don't know. And I feel like if you transmit all this information without being like, hey, actually, 
we just know like pieces of what reality is. You know, there's so much that we don't know. And that's why we need science because that can help us figure stuff. I mean, we need other other methods of inquiry, too. (laughs) I'm not saying just science, but like, you know, I don't know. I I feel like that uh, that sense of like wonder and amazement and also some you know, healthy imagination of like, oh, I wonder if this, maybe that, because that's what gets you hypothesizing. And then you can make predictions and go test them. And they'll be like much more fun and cool predictions and hypotheses than you would have if you did not engage your imagination. Could I ask though, does this ever bum you guys out? Like, it's a, this is pretty mean. (laughs) 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 It makes me feel good to be a person. Like, I, 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 Toxoplasma gondii is unpleasant in a lot of ways, uh-huh. but at least there's nothing like burrowing through my skull. And so I, <laughs> maybe it makes me feel, but it's creepy. Nature is cruel. It's real. Yeah, cre- yeah that's real creepy. What so. do you two think? I mean, I know when I was thinking about this, I was starting to feel itchy. And then I was starting <laughs> to think, wait, am I itchy because I'm thinking about this? Or is something burrowing out of my skull? Um, so... <laughs> I don't know. What do you think, Athena? I mean, I just think it's really cool. It is creepy, but um, it's it's fascinating. And, and, you know, and I totally like nerd out on the like parallels between like parasitism and then like other forms of manipulation too, right? Like social manipulation and uh, how like we're zombified by like algorithms on our phones. And so for me, like thinking about and talking about all these like creepy, weird things that happen in the biological world. Um, it kind of, I don't know, to me, it makes it like a little bit more real, like that these other forms of manipulation that can happen in like human relationships or with technology, like, yeah, no, those can actually like eat your brains too. Like, you know, there's, (laughs) (laughs) it's, you know, if there's like manipulation that causes you to do something that benefits the, you know, entities that are trying to manipulate you and changes your behavior, like. That's just as legit of a zombification as a, you know, wasp that's like literally eating the insides of another wasp. So yeah, mm-hmm. I don't the the ants thinking about the ants hanging from the leaves just stuck there forever. That bummed me out. Like that one, I was like, oh my gosh. Then that ant doesn't get to fulfill whatever its antly purpose in life was yeah just a shell of an ant (laughs) yeah it's true but i gotta tell you the first time i saw it in the wild uh i didn't think oh it was like what i we were so nerdy what like one of the people that i was with yelled ophiocordyceps and we we were with a bunch of like snake people and so only the parasite people got it and like so half of the group was like huh and the other half of the group was like so we oh all gosh. like freaked out and like ran towards him and we were like tripping over ourselves to get there and anyway it was for the, for all of us it was our first time seeing ophiocordyceps in the wild but it's no i could i could totally see how it would be exciting but then it also i don't know i feel bad for that ant so no i i see where you're coming from i've i've gotten cold i guess uh, yeah. <laughs> So, so Kelly, you know, if we think about the ways that, you know, parasites manipulate us, manipulate other organisms, and, you know, if we just kind of allowed, like, that to, like, get turned up a few notches, like, you know, that if parasitism, zombification, like, if, if agents of zombification were able to do, like, a better job, even, of taking over hosts than they can now, like, what 
kind of zombie apocalypse would that be? Like what would what would be <laughs> happening in that hmm. zombie apocalypse? So like if Toxoplasma gondii amped it up a couple notches? Yeah, is that- yeah. Yeah, if Toxo <laughs> amped it up or, you know, whatever the, you know, the parasites that are like really good at getting the host to take care of their offspring or yeah. like getting better at it or, you know, yeah, if if the, yeah, if parasites just like had more of an advantage in the game, what 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 would that be like? And, you know, you talk about like biology, but then you know, so like what would it be like for us? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So like uh, I will I have never been asked this question, uh, actually. And so let's see. I all right. So first of all, like the the evolutionary biologist in me feels like a parasitoid jumping to a human is too big of a jump to be the cause of the apocalypse. And so it's easier for me to imagine something Toxoplasma gondii related, but but all, but like you know, you don't see a lot of movies with trophically transmitted parasites in them, so it might be something totally different than what we've been imagining. And so I don't know, maybe we'd be like strapping stakes to our waist and going out in search of mountain lions. Uh, that might be what Ooh. the apocalypse look, looks like. Uh, that's all. Wait, wait, because like we're we're manipulated by Toxo to try to get eaten by mountain lions. What? Because because they need. When they get back to cats, that's where they can do their sexual reproduction. And so, like, what kind of behaviors could we do? You know, maybe we'd be jumping into the lion pen at the zoo. I know. Uh, Wasn't that there a whole, like, show about that with the Tiger King? The Tiger King? Oh. (laughs) Oh. I mean, we could all... People pay a lot of money to go and, like, snuggle up with big cats. And I always wonder, I'm like, what? Is this a is this like a a tax on people who have Toxoplasma gondii? <laughs> I mean, or could we, could we just have like at home? Could we just start enjoying if our cats like? Because you know, when I've had cats and they bite me, up till now I haven't liked it. But if I start thinking, <laughs> oh, that's nice. Go ahead, take a take a few bites. Right, we could just sort of be living for a long time, just slowly letting our cats eat away. All of our flesh, right? Yeah, um, yeah. So, so especially could, if you can do all your meetings on Zoom, you can just like lay there. <laughs> just suddenly, you just realize, wait, you. what happened to? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what happened you, to your arm? Oh, I fed it to my cat. That's so. right. Here you go, nibbler. Here's my finger. Uh, well, and so, so I just remembered another transmission mode for the parasite. So we think that in some cases the parasite can get transmitted uh, during sex, more often from males to females. And so maybe there'd be some amped up uh, sexual behavior. And am I allowed to talk about this on your yes, show? I yes. won't go into more details. Yeah. Okay. But, you know, yeah. so maybe like, you know, bar culture times 100 plus strapping stakes to your waist and going to visit cats. Yeah. Well, probably also peeing. I'm just saying. Mm already you know like like being into peeing i'm sorry now that's kind of almost inappropriate but um right it like because i mean the the rats are they're into the smell of the cat pee so i'm i'm just saying it's possible that pee could be involved that's all i'm gonna say but it would have to be cat pee like so some studies have looked at different kinds of pee and it's gotta yeah. be cat pee okay and I'll, so, I'll give you that it's gotta okay. be cat pee all right i mean so i, I guess maybe Maybe part of the, you know, evolution of Toxoplasma in this case would be to generalize the pea scent thing. But uh, right now it's cat pee. Yeah. Well, I mean, it seems like it has to be, it would have to be the pee of whatever the predator is. 
yeah. or whatever the final thing is, right? Because it's or, like, yeah, yeah whatever the could. wherever the sexual reproduction is occurring, whoever the sexual reproduction is occurring inside of. So then the question is like, what if sexual reproduction could occur inside us or inside? Oh yeah, a lot of other oh. mammals. I mean, I, I think the question we need to be asking ourselves is, how do we copyright this idea before someone steals it and makes a movie about it? You know? Yeah, why don't we just put it out on a podcast for everybody to listen to? Yeah, <laughs> that'll work. I go. do feel like we have like uh, a whole bunch of screenplay ideas that uh, have have come up over the course of this conversation. I mean, I do think this so. one would be kind of interesting, of where it's sort of like a. a Hitchcock's birds, but with cats, where we start to realize as our behavior starts to, we start to become more attracted to cats. We start to let cats eat us. Like there's Mm -hmm. a lot of like, um, really interesting ways the cat apocalypse could play out. Um, so, uh, yeah, no, no doubt. And you know, I will say that trophically transmitted parasites that like manipulate their host, that is a very common form of manipulation that you pretty much never see in pop culture. And yeah. so it's, you know, it's just not fair is what I'm saying. Well, I, I think you could we could have like a whole series of horror movies based on trophically transmitted parasites. Well, yeah. And when you think about sort of classic zombie movies, right, they're always trying to eat us. But I guess there could be a thing that just makes us want to be eaten by other people. Right. If if it can also oh. then. Yeah. Um, that passes yeah. it on. So yeah, no, you, you have like. You have your neighbors over and you're like, no, this is like really great steak. But like later you're, you know, you bend over and your shirt goes up and it's clear that like you've cut off a piece of your back oh. and fed it to them. And to infect them. Oh, and- God, that's- <laughs> wow. Yeah. See? There you go. That's pretty good. That's pretty creepy. Like that would be it's a really fun creepy. little... That's that really is pretty creepy. creepy. Little zombie movie. So yeah. yeah. And that would have um, interesting like social implications if you had to worry that your friends were like slipping pieces of themselves into your meal or something. Like, yes. You know, they're trying to get you to people. eat that. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So this is a weird uh, road we've gone down. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I I mean it seems like there's a lot of um, amazing apocalyptic scenarios that could happen if we just turn up the volume a little bit on you know parasite manipulation yeah yeah well so so what are your favorite manipulators dave you want to go first um i mean technology i think is really a fun one you know that one's like one of my favorites um and so i don't know what what about you athena you know, I really like the jewel wasp that like takes over the cockroach and then like leads it to the jewel wasp's nest and then like puts it in there and then lays its eggs in there. And then the the baby jewel wasps eat the cockroach from the inside out. But like they leave the, the essential organs to last. So the cockroach can basically be like both dinner and the babysitter at the same time. Oh. It's beautiful. That and, and that's another wasp that's iridescent and who knows why. Uh, and, and that's another amazing ovipositor. So like that ovipositor, not only does the jewel wasp lay eggs on the cockroach, but it also like goes inside of the cockroach's head so that it can like sting a certain part of its brain. Right. And so the, the cockroach can still move, but it doesn't move of its own volition anymore. So like the, the jewel wasp will grab onto one of the antennae and like, walk it like it's walking a dog and the cockroach yeah, yeah. It, it, 
And it'll, and it'll even, it's like, uh, it'll, it'll break off the antenna and it'll suck the juice out of it. Yeah. Like, throw that away and then like use it like a joystick or like a walking antenna. <laughs> yeah. It's like, I'm just going to take a ride on this, uh, on this cockroach here and bring it, bring it home so it can be a, you know, unpaid babysitter mm-hmm. and dinner. In, insult so. to injury there. Yeah. And, and so totally. I think like. Part of the idea is that if the cockroach is walking around on its own while the jewel wasp goes off in search of the little compartment it's going to store the cockroach in, the cockroach might escape. And so it needs to like stay in one spot, but it still needs to be mobile because the wasp can't like pick it up and bring it where it needs to go because the cockroach is so big. And like, anyway, just another incredible example, this time with the nervous system of like how precise this manipulation is. Yeah. Well, I think it has like, it does two injections. So Uh It does um, one initially um, to like chill the uh, the cockroach out, and mm-hmm. then it's like a little bit you know it's not moving as much, and then it does like a you know total like neurosurgery you know next injection that then allows it to control the the motor system of the cockroach. So. Yeah, yeah, so cool. That's pretty they, sweet. Yeah. I'm going to forget some of the details of this study, but like they were trying to figure out like, is the ovipositor just like randomly shooting venom into the brain or is it targeted? And so they like changed cockroach brains where they put like a jello-y substance in there or they cleared everything out. And like when there was not a brain there, the ovipositor was like searching around like, what the hell is happening here? Like, wow. and it just couldn't find the spot it was looking for. But when the brain was there and in the normal spot, it was like, sting, got it. So like, it's looking for something in there. It's not just randomly like shooting the venom in. It's, it's pretty incredible. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. So now how much consciousness do we think these different, you know, parasitoids have, I guess. Like, so, sorry, go ahead. No, no, that's that's basically the question. <laughs> yeah, I, I hope low. And so like <laughs> I, part, part of how I sleep at night and don't get too upset about it is I'm like, oh, wasps probably like probably don't really know what's going on. They, you know, they probably don't have like existential dread. Like they're not claustrophobic <laughs> like I am. Uh, and I, I guess I wouldn't want to find out if I'm wrong. But uh, but anyway, so it might my. my I hope the answer is low, but I don't, I, you know, I don't know how you would get a good answer to something like that. Yeah. I, well, well also because I'm thinking the parasites, this is some pretty elaborate behavior, right? That they've got yeah. to find the, they've either got to find the right spot on the brain or they've got to find the right spot on the egg and they've got to know what like, and so. Yeah. But you don't necessarily need consciousness to do really complicated stuff i mean sometimes the consciousness gets in the way because you're all like self-conscious right mm-hmm. I, you, you could just enact you know the behaviors in a rote kind of way and you don't necessarily need to be aware in order to do really complex things mm-hmm. probably better because you'd be thinking gosh i'm a real jerk yeah maybe or maybe i mean they set out in the morning where they're like i'm gonna find the perfect wasp to infect today and then they either do or they go home and they're like man today was a bust so i I don't know how long they live maybe they only have a few days to do all this but um how long do they live Uh, the jewel wasp in particular uh or the crypt keeper wasp so so we don't, we don't know its whole lifespan, but, uh, you know, I think it's in there. It's in that crypt for weeks to months. Wow. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So. 
Yeah. I like how you're like imagining a, a whole like, you know, jungle of like insect sociopaths, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> but they're also sort of like just trudging through life, right? Where they're like, they're trying to be sociopathic, but you know, probably some of them are better than others where they're like, yeah, I couldn't find any, I couldn't find any goals today. So mm-hmm. I hope tomorrow's better. So failure. Oh, I think you've got like the children's movie version of what we've been talking about. <laughs> so many marketable ideas in the last hour. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. So, yeah. So, so Kelly, uh, we've sort of talked about the really, you know, like dark side of, you know, zombification and parasites and how they can take us over. So I guess I have I have two questions that are kind of related. One is like first, well we'll take the first one, which is is it always bad to get parasitized? Can it be good to be parasitized sometimes? Yeah. Uh well, it depends on the extent to which uh the interests of the parasite and the host align. Uh and so oh gosh, what were the examples that I had of this? Um, so like, you know, imagine you are uh, a parasite that's sexually transmitted and your host hasn't been totally castrated yet. Maybe there's something you can do to increase the short-term attractiveness of your host so that they get a mate so that you can get transmitted. And if that individual is not castrated yet, uh, maybe that'll be okay. And I'm trying to remember if there's any system where that has happened, Shelly Adamo had a paper about aphrodisiac parasites, and I can't remember if they were all castrated beforehand uh, or not. But I mean, you can imagine situations where interests align short term, probably not long term, uh, but you could get maybe like a a host that's like, okay, probably going to die. I'm going to amp up my current uh, effort in reproduction now that I can like tell that I'm infected. My immune system is, is all acting up. And if the parasite can sort of enhance that, if that benefits the parasite too, maybe they both benefit. So there are conditions where you can imagine uh, interests aligning in some situations, but whether that's a net fitness benefit for the host or just like a situational fitness benefit, hard to know. Right. And and we talked earlier about the sort of, you know, parasitoid upon parasitoid situation where like, uh, you know, a tree could actually want a parasitoid but a parasitoid on the parasitoid that is infecting the tree so that's like i don't know if that totally counts but it's kind of related no yeah, kind of related i was gonna say does toxo how does toxo affect the fitness of cats because it seems like it provides them with a lot of potential food right but does it yeah yeah so okay so it depends on like what stage you're thinking about so there's uh for the cats the parasite toxo doesn't usually do bad things to the cats. So it reproduces inside of the cats. Uh, and I guess it benefits them, but it's sort of like benefiting be- them before it has even infected them by making the food easier to catch. Mm-hmm. There are some cats who like can get bad toxo infections, maybe if they're immunocompromised. So there are still some cases where toxoplasmosis can kill cats. Um, I also study a trematode that infects the brains of fish and it gets the fish to like start darting around and acting super conspicuous. And it appears to increase consumption rates by predatory birds, which are the next host in the life cycle. Mm. And the predatory birds don't seem to be negatively impacted by the trematodes. And so they're getting this like free meal. Um, I guess like 
yeah, it's hard for me to think of them as benefiting before they're infected, but the parasite is essentially like serving up a, you know, dish on a platter and then taking some energy, but probably not more energy than the host got. Uh, Then the parasite produces its eggs, they pass with the bird's feces, and then the parasites die. That's interesting, right? Because if you think about it, like, well, what if, you know, humans could like produce something that like, you know, made a, a bunch of things that we would want to eat, like, want to come up to us or make themselves very conspicuous mm. to us mm-hmm. like that's basically what's happening with with toxo and um with the the example you were saying with the fish and the birds and the is it nematode you said true well, yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah so um right because that's it's like i mean if we humans could like invent something that made like food just want to like jump into our mouths. Like you could make money off of that. Right. (laughs) I I feel like it would be unsettling at first to be like, Oh, the like Turkey for my Turkey dinner, like came to my porch. And maybe that's weird. And then Uh, just burst, just burst open. Well, it cooked itself first. Fully cooked, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I might be suspicious and it might make it less appetizing, but I'd probably get over it because turkey's delicious. (laughs) But but yeah, I mean, if if, if there was a way to do it, right, it didn't involve a parasite, I think people would be really into it. Yeah, and and, and, and we don't... uh, for, you know, thinking about time frame so that you can work on taking over the world uh, in this way. I, I think for at the moment, we don't understand a lot of these systems very well to try to figure out, like, how could we market this? Um, but an angle that most of us use in our grants is like, so with, um, is that, you know, maybe we could figure out uh, medication for treating anxiety or depression. So like the parasite that I study that infects the brains of trematodes it seems to be suppressing their stress response. So usually when you stress out uh, a fish, they increase serotonergic activity in the RAF nuclei. But when they're infected, the they get much less of an increase. So like their stress response is sort of tamped down. And so like, is this maybe an avenue that might be helpful for like an anti-anxiety drug? Can we figure out is the parasite producing some compound that we haven't thought of making ourselves yet? Uh, and so there are people who are trying to like, see what the parasites are doing and then figure out how we can benefit ourselves with this knowledge. Well, maybe all the rising anxiety now is just because we're winning against parasites. Maybe we all need some parasites to calm down. <laughs> but, but not Toxo, right? Because you said Toxo increases neuroticism. Cause, That's, yes. Because when yeah. you were saying, when at first you said it impacts it, I was actually thinking, oh, if it's lower, then maybe I should just go eat some mice and see if, you know, that I'm like going through the day feeling relaxed. So, <laughs> but maybe I need to eat some, some fish that I see darting around, right? Would that be the, what I should try? Yeah, go for it. All right, I will. <laughs> so, so Kelly, uh, what, what can we do um, to protect ourselves from being hijacked in ways that are sort of against our fitness interests, you know, when it comes to parasites. Uh, Cook your food through thoroughly. But Uh, what if it's so delicious when it's like raw? You have a phenotype that's more likely to get infected. Oh, this (laughs) maybe explains why I'm so weird going back to the the conversation. But you're very social. So that could be, you know, that could be parasites that are like, go talk to people. So it could have pros and cons. So. 
Right, right. And one, one thing you have going for you is that living in the U.S., we do a lot of, you know, tests on our meats to try to make sure that pe- that there's not toxo in there so that if you don't cook your meat through all the way, you're not going to get infected. But like, you know, if you're supporting the local factory farm, then, you know, if they've got a barn cat and the cow got infected and you want to cook it through all the way. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I cook my food through all the way. I'm also not a big sushi fan. Uh, but I do know plenty of parasitologists who eat sushi and that seems to be less of a mind control thing and more of a like, there are some nematodes that can cause you and some, some tapeworms that can cause you a bit of gastric distress. Uh, but most of my friends are willing to take that risk, but I'm not because fish smell bad. And, (laughs) um, yeah, I don't know. You just, you gotta be, you gotta wash your hands and be careful about what you eat. Make sure your toddlers wash their hands thoroughly. That's right. And yeah. don't let them touch their butts. <laughs> <laughs> Public service announcement. That's right. Good, good luck with that, though. That's a hard one. Well, it seems like there are uh, a lot of um, ways that parasites kind of affect our lives that it, it can be hard to even, like, realize, like, in our in our daily lives. I'm wondering, like, you know, for you in your daily life, like, how many times do you think about parasites we were just talking about like eating and like you know is it is it part of like your your every day that you're just thinking about parasites all the time well uh i i have anxiety and so maybe i should be getting those parasites but but i do i think about them i mean so i live in the woods so i think about ticks and uh the blood you know the parasites that i could get from the or the pathogens i could get from those ticks and I live on a farm that came with some barn cats. And so I worry when my kids are playing in the dirt that maybe the cat pooped in there. Uh, so they've got to wash their hands often. And I do freeze my meat before I cook it. And I cook it through all the way. And But I also have plenty of parasitologist friends who worry way less about all that stuff. So a lot of it is also just how neurotic we were to begin with. Or maybe I got infected by Toxa when I was young. And I'm just neurotic now because of it. Yeah. <laughs> spent a lot of time outside. There, there's such huge like cultural differences too yeah. right in terms of like how do you prepare food mm-hmm. right um which could have a huge impact on the prevalence of oh, yeah. parasites in the population totally yeah and that's why these cultural studies or you know across states are so difficult because they do you know as you mentioned earlier there could be a third factor that's driving these correlations and it could be all about cultures that differ in uh, how they prepare their food. Wow. Yeah. Amazing. Well, Kelly, do you have any last words that you want to leave our, our audience with? Like if we're trying to, you know, keep the, the parasite apocalypse from, you know, from happening or, or Or if we want it to happen, if we want the best possible parasite apocalypse, whatever, whatever you choose. So, well, so I, I feel like <clears throat> I feel like studying zombification a- as it relates to parasites and hosts could actually benefit us in the long term if we can, you know, like if we think of these parasites as evolutionary neuroscientists, which is a phrase that Shelley Adamo came up with, and we like take into account the fact that they've had, you know, millions of years through the process of natural selection to sort of tinker with links between brain and behavior in their host. You know, there's probably a lot that we could learn if we can just, you know, get the funding to study them in more detail. And so, you know, maybe maybe we'll avoid the zombie apocalypse or something by being able to, like, understand what's happening better. Uh, I guess I'd, I'd prefer to think about how it could be beneficial 
rather than like how a government is going to co-opt it and control all of our brains or something. This is, uh, that this, could never happen. This idea, though, I, I this would be a cool movie where people start taking, you know, where people are basically juicing with parasites, where it's like you're taking the parasite that helps you win the race or you're taking, you know, like the parasite that makes that's you so more confident. That's not different from like taking probiotics the what? with it. That's not so different from taking probiotics, you know. Yeah, but it's a better a movie. Like, okay, okay, good point, good point. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You would, like eat a parasite, like you're like looking at it and... Yeah, well, that's true, that right? Would... So I see what you're saying. The probiotics, because they like when people are talking about their sort of like gut biome and those sorts of yeah, things. Yeah, yeah. I mean, because like lactobacillus is associated with like you know better stress regulation, and you know that like it, there's there's you know good evidence that there are microbes that you know can affect our behavior. And oh, so and really, like we that. are zombifying ourselves when we eat yogurt or whatever has probiotics in it. Well, we're at least putting microbes into our bodies that, you know, can have effects on our behavior, physiology, emotional states. Interesting. Mm -hmm. And and are you all familiar with the hygiene hypothesis? Mm -mm. Mm -hmm, but uh, you can should, I hear it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so the idea—it's also called the uh, old friends hypothesis. And the idea here is that our immune systems evolved in the presence of things like nematodes in our guts. So, like you know, every human walking around on the savanna probably had a bunch of nematodes in their guts. So, our immune systems evolved to expect them. And uh, I'm not completely up to date on the current mechanisms through which people think this is happening. But the last time I looked. The idea was that our immune systems are sort of trained on self versus not self uh, by like having nematodes there. So they can be like, okay, so that's what not me is. And when nematodes are gone and you don't have nematodes anymore, your immune system can end up attacking you instead. And so as we live in these cleaner and cleaner environments and we're less likely to encounter nematodes, we're getting more autoimmune diseases and more allergies um, and I think the hypothesis also includes things like soil bacteria, not just nematodes, but like, you know, we were playing in the dirt a lot more and not washing our hands as much. And so our immune system is just not getting these cues that it evolved with and it's throwing us off. And instead we're responding to things we shouldn't be responding to that aren't bad, like pollen, or we're attacking our own guts. Uh, and so there are some people who are, you know, they'll like go to areas where there's hookworm and they'll walk around in areas where they think hookworm is likely to be. So hookworm is a parasite that burrows through your skin and goes through this convoluted path to get to your gut. Uh, or they'll be taking some other parasites. Uh, like there, there are some labs that study this now, so you don't have to just self-infect and hope it works out okay. You okay, can, like, sure. You can team up with labs and they'll give you like pig whip worm or something. Um, and so, so yeah, there are some people who are self-infecting to try to cure some, some really debilitating things. I don't recommend anyone tries this. And, uh, Athena, do you know this more This is about not it? medical advice. No, nope, nope, nope. No, not, not medical advice. Wow. Yeah. 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 But, but yeah, I mean that just the general idea that, you know, we are like our immune systems can overreact, which can lead to pathology, right? Which can lead to us, you know, being dysfunctional. Um, I mean, I think there's really good evidence for for that. And then, you know, we certainly do have way less exposure to a whole variety of parasites today. And, you know, if our bodies do, then you know, not kind of train on the right set, right? It's like, you know, if um 
like say you're a kid and you you're growing up in the in the suburbs where like there aren't like scary animals that might eat you um then um when you see a clown you might be like oh, a clown i, I kind of feel like it's like that right it's like we're like kids are like ready to be afraid of something and if there's not like really something to be afraid of then maybe they become afraid of clowns or santa claus like my brother was afraid of santa claus as a child so yeah. i don't know maybe Maybe that's taking it a little too far because there is something fundamentally scary about clowns, really. Um, yeah. But uh, <laughs> there's a really great book called An Epidemic of Absence. And it's all about how like these things have sort of disappeared from many of our lives and how that throws off our immune system. And it's written by a guy who has an autoimmune disease. So it attacks his hair follicles. So he like doesn't Ooh. have any hair. And he was trying to, you know, he was debating whether or not he was going to infect himself. And he was going to all these labs to figure out where the state of the science is. Uh, and it's a fantastic book. I highly recommend it. And I think that I am not as neurotic as I could be about infections because I read the book and was like, okay, my kids should be playing in the dirt, just maybe not the dirt near the hay barn where the barn cats live. <laughs> but, uh, but anyway, it's a really great book. Well, and you know, you probably don't have to worry because you have such great hair, so you're fine. <laughs> I don't understand. Oh, I will. oh, got it. Got it. Oh, yes. Thank right? you. Yes, yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So your hair follicles are not getting destroyed by an overactive immune system. So. No, no, that's good. Yeah, no, yeah. I don't have yeah. allergies, and so, yeah, I don't need those nematodes. <laughs> <laughs> I don't need no stinking nematodes. Nope. <laughs> or maybe I've always had them. <laughs> i guess uh we'll all have to you know look at like what testing we can actually do if we want do you want do you want to actually know dave if you are infected with? yeah i would actually media? love to know if i have like toxo and you know i feel like that would explain a lot i think that'd be really interesting <laughs> and so i'd like to know all these sorts of things and a variety of other parasites yeah have. Yeah. Oh. We we could start a whole like, you know, what parasites am I infected by that might be making me weird kind of thing. We could do like a little like a little Ooh. set of, you know, side uh mini podcasts about uh how various parasites can make you weird. Yeah. Or forget, you know, forget going to a doctor. Let's just create a Facebook quiz that sort of says <laughs> ask people behavioral questions and then diagnosis them with with parasites. So. <laughs> I, I have to admit, I wimped out. I like when I, so I've been pregnant twice and both times I went to the, the doctor and I was like, are you going to test me for toxoplasmosis? And they're uh, like, no, you don't need to know. You just, you should just be careful one way or another. And I was like, uh, but don't you want to know if I have toxoplasmosis? And she's like, no, just be careful. And I didn't have, I, I couldn't bring myself to say, but I need to know if that explains my personality. Like, I just, <laughs> and so I just, I let, I let it go. I just, I wouldn't change my behavior if I knew anyway. So what yeah. Do? Yeah. I think I want to know. I think I might try to find a way to get tested and just see. You should go to the doctor and tell them that you're pregnant. You really need to <laughs> but <know>. apparently <laughs> that, that Kelly tried that. It didn't work. So I gotta, I just think me, I need to say, listen, just test me for this. So, Keep me posted. I, I want right. to know what you find out. All right. I'll let you know. So. Yeah. <laughs> Kelly, thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Zombified. Um, your brains are amazing, regardless of what kind of parasites you've got in there. <laughs> I mean, just amazing, delicious brains. And we're so grateful <laughs> to you for sharing those brains with us today. 
Well, thank you. This was tons of fun. And I got asked a bunch of questions I've never been asked before, which is always extra super fun to stretch your brain to try to figure out the answer. So thank you. This was awesome. I had a blast. And if the whole world says that we're cool, we don't need nobody anyhow. But if you don't want to fall in love, you better tell me right now. And if the whole world says that we're crazy, Zombified is a production of Arizona State University and Zombified Media. And we would like to thank all of the brains that helped make this episode possible, including the Department of Psychology at Arizona State University, the Interdisciplinary Cooperation Initiative and President's Office at ASU, the Lincoln Center for Applied Ethics. Do we need a disclaimer that the way the Creatures Act is not condoned by <laughs> by, <laughs> those who support the yes. podcast. Yeah, I think we should make sure to yes to say, say they the, do not they do not support it, taking over. Um. In fact, the Lincoln Center for Applied Ethics um, might actually have a ethical stance against against like laying your eggs in another creature's egg and then having it eat its way through a skull. Like, so yeah, things like that. I think yeah. Um, all right. So, oh, and we also want to thank all the brains that helped make this make this podcast. Yeah. Like Tall, <laughs> like Tall Rom, um, who does our sound, and Neil Smith, yeah, who does our illustrations, and Lemmy, who has no last name, uh, who is the creator of our song "Psychological," which is like a parasite in my That's brain right. that I never want to leave. It's such a great song. Wow. Well, at least, yeah, it's taken over your brain. And now it's like, now you're, now, now you're moving. You. And so it's like, yeah, it really has. Makes me act like, the way I do. Athena is dancing right now. So, <laughs> and that song is just bursting forth from her head. <laughs> Trying <laughs> to infect you and yes, all others. Yes. Um, and oh, and we want to thank the Z team. All of the amazing brains on our Z team and also the people who are, who the brains inhabit. Who the, bra- the yeah, brains yeah, yeah. are the inhabiting people. the people. Yes, exactly. So, yeah. So, thank you, guys. Um, and uh, also, everyone who is listening should follow us on all the social media platforms. Follow us. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Do um, it. Yes. And, uh, and, you know, and use these platforms to try to infect other people, I think, really. Yeah. The- yeah. Share. Not just follow us, but try to disseminate our material so that it takes over everybody else's brains. Follow, share. Yeah. On Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram. We are zombified media. Yeah. 
And also you can go find us on the web at zombified.org or zombifiedmedia.org. I think you can go to either one. Right? Yeah. Do people like still go to websites anymore? I think they just go on social media. Um, I, I Do you go to websites? Do I go? Yeah, I, do I? If there's like links from social media to them, then maybe. Maybe. Yeah. Okay. I go to YouTube, but is that social media or is that a website? That's social, that media social media now. Yeah, so, maybe yeah. I think it oh, used to be a website. Oh, people should also follow us on YouTube, Yes, by the way. right, we on YouTube. One, so. Well, we are Channel Z on YouTube. We have like all this live stream content, which we probably should talk about at the end of these episodes, but we, we Yeah, that's kind really. of like a, probably the, the social media content we put the most effort into and then we forget to mention it. So yeah. check yeah. that out. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, and then also, but if you do like going to web pages, also if you like wearing clothes um and <laughs> drinking from mugs do, do we have mugs yeah we've got mugs we have all the things and we also have stickers if you like putting stickers on your forehead or your friend's foreheads then you can get stickers also there you go those stickers totally wasp proof wasp proof stickers yeah if, if you put them on your, your head, forehead the wasp cannot get out perfect so. <laughs> <Excellent>. <laughs> um oh and people should also check out um all of kelly's books yes so. Um, definitely check out all of kelly's books and um you will you will find yourself zombified by not just the amazing stories of parasites but also her unbelievable capacity to talk about complicated science in very very uh digestible yeah should i say digestible language you see what i did there yeah, like, Di- like, like like parasites that. eating uh, eating you. Oh, I see. Like the like digestible from the inside out. Yeah, her oh. books are digestible from the inside out. Right. So then that's you gonna, are like yeah. the you're on the inside and you're digesting the world. That's uh, that's all right. That's pretty good. So um, and uh, is there anything else we say at the end? We say thank you for listening to Zombified, your source for fresh brains. It's crazy, but it seems so logical. I can't deny that there is something supernatural with you. Makes me act the way.